Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon. It's a determined, if dubious, committed, if cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, often wrong but rarely in doubt, exercise in elevated gas baggery that neither rain nor snow nor heat nor gloom of night nor the toxic rantings of the nuthouse right. A president attempting to invalidate a legitimate election and stage an auto coup, complete with an armed insurrection at the United States Capitol, nor more broadly and arguably even more disturbingly, the capture of a decent-sized chunk of our political, social, and civic spheres by a cadre of incoherent, insidious, conspiracy-addled, autocracy-craving, authoritarian-worshipping lunatics, hustlers, grifters, nihilists, and nincompoops. None of it, none of it has kept us from our duly sworn duty and obligations, giving you, our listeners, a fresh episode of this podcast week after week after week after week. Maybe not without fail, because, you know, hashtag epic fail is one of our many mottos around here, but certainly without a pause. We've been doing that for more than two years, haven't had a break. All of which is to say that I am plum shagged out and desperately in need of some R&R and with the midterm election now comfortably in the rearview mirror in our democracy, amazingly, if I will admit a little unexpectedly, still intact, it seems like a suitable time for the Hell and High Water Home Office to give itself a fucking break. And so for the next few weeks, that is exactly what we are going to do. And we'll see you back here on the other side of the holidays, tanned, rested, refreshed, revitalized, and raring to go, ready to get back to cranking out more tasty content. In the meantime, don't despair. We're not leaving you entirely in the lurch for these weeks. To the contrary, every Tuesday morning, per usual, you will find a hopefully unfamiliar episode of the podcast doing the backstroke in your feed, dropped there by the able AI factotums who will be minding the store while we're away. And while these episodes that come over the next few weeks may not be fresh or, strictly speaking, new, they will be piping hot, a carefully curated series of Hell and High Water Golden Oldies, which those of you who've been around from the start may remember, I hope fondly, and those of you who came along sometime later may never have encountered it all. Given our focus on politics these past few months and our desire not to take a dump on your mood of holiday-inspired good cheer, we've decided that these encore presentations will avoid that topic like the plague and focus instead on culture, entertainment, technology, and such, with a run of some of our most favorite guests in those realms over the past two years, including this beauty right here, which, whether or not you've heard it before, you will not want to miss. And so with that, we leave you to it with a hearty and heartfelt namaste. Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell on High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. We are back, back in the saddle after a brief hiatus, and we have some badass guests lined up for the rest of the summer and into the fall, and I really think that you all are going to dig picking up what we are laying down here at Hell on High Water. And to launch ourselves back into the fray, we are returning to an all-too-familiar topic, Donald Trump. Now, I'm well aware that for many, if not most, if not all of us here in Hell and High Waterland, we all had 
dearly hoped that by now the former guy would be in our collective rearview mirror. But even after being banned from social media, even after being exiled to Mar-a-Lago, Trump has proven inescapable. And now a veritable tidal wave of books about Trump 2020, his re-election campaign and his final days in office is about to come crashing down on the reading public with the authors of those books trying to surf that wave on cable news and podcasts like this one. You will be relieved, I am certain, to hear that I have no intention of interviewing all of them, or even many of them, or even a few of them. But today, I am interviewing one of them, a guy who not only happens to have hit the beach first, but whose book is particularly valuable both for history and the present day. Rock solid in its reporting, shocking in its news breaks, and deeply revealing about the former president's character. The author is also a friend and former colleague of mine. His book is called, Frankly, We Did Win This Election, the inside story of how Trump lost. And his name is Mike Bender. The state of Donald Trump's post-presidency is surprisingly in flux. One of the things I think this book shows is how dangerous it was inside the White House, how close to the brink things really got for this country. And Republicans in 2021 and 2022 are heading into these midterms eyes wide open on who Donald Trump is and what his governance style looks like. Michael C. Bender is the senior White House reporter for The Wall Street Journal, the winner in 2019 of the Gerald R. Ford Foundation Journalism Prize for Distinguished Reporting on the Presidency, and in 2020 of the National Press Club Award for Political Analysis for a series of stories that Bender wrote on the details and sights and sounds and inner workings of Trump campaign rallies, of which he has been to way too many. Born and raised in Cleveland, Bender is a newspaper guy and a hardcore reporter of the highest caliber whose career has taken him from covering local and state politics at the Grand Junction Colorado Daily Sentinel, the Dayton Daily News, the Palm Beach Post, and the Tampa Bay Times, to national politics at Bloomberg News and now the Wall Street Journal. Bender and I first crossed paths at Bloomberg Politics, where I was co-managing editor during the 2016 presidential cycle, and Bender, with his background in Florida politics, covered the Republican frontrunner who everyone in the establishment assumed would be Hillary Clinton's inevitable opponent, Jeb Bush. Remember him? Trump, of course, made mincemeat of Jeb and everyone else in 2016. Bender moved on to the journal and started covering the GOP nominee, the president, now ex-president, eventually publishing more than 1,100 stories on Donald Trump over the course of five years. Man, what an amazing and also utterly depressing prospect. And now Bender has a whole book on Donald Trump. Frankly, we did win this election. The former guy, as everyone knows, is back to his rallies, back to bestowing endorsements on MAGA-friendly Republican candidates, back to talking to Fox News and other arms of the right-wing propaganda machine, back to cranking out almost as many email press releases every day as he used to blast out tweets. And of course, and most to the point, continuing to perpetuate the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen and exerting his sway over the GOP just as profoundly and even more perniciously than he did when he was in the Oval Office. All of which is why Trump is still relevant, unfortunately, today, and why I wanted to have Bender on the podcast to talk about his fantastic new book, which is Chock-A-Block, with fresh reporting, perspective, and insights that won't likely change many minds about Trump, but will reinforce in powerful ways the unique dangers he posed to the country in his time in the White House. My conversation with Bender was so engrossing that the two of us could not stop talking, and so... Not for the first time, we've decided to turn this episode of the podcast into a special two-parter. So, after you listen to this first installment, be sure to check back tomorrow when we'll be dropping part two of my exploration of 2020, January 6th, and all things related to the 45th president of the United States and perish the thought 
the 2024 Republican frontrunner, with the one and only Mike Bender here on Hell and High Water. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. We did win this election. So there it is. Uh, not only a moment that I think will be written about, talked about in American history forever, but also the moment that gives our guest today, Mike Bender. Hi, Mike. Uh, hey, Jeff. The, the title for his book. Mike <laughs> yeah. Bender, my friend and former colleague, mm-hmm. uh, the author of Frankly, We Didn't Win This Election, the inside story of how Trump lost. Um, it's great to see you. Me too. Here, as we sit here on the brink of the Bender rollout, which of course has been, mm-hmm. uh, the pre-rollout has been masterfully orchestrated. <laughs> Thank you. The nuggets are are appearing. The scoops are popping. Everyone's mm. talking about Bender. <laughs> um, you must be feeling great right now. Yeah, it feels really, really good. It's been uh, such a slog. I mean, everybody's 2020. Everyone's life got turned upside down. Routines were upset. It was hard on everybody. And so was mine. But it feels really good to get this thing right on the brink, as you said, out there. And the reception so far has just been so nice. It's really reaffirming to see, you know, my colleagues, my peers treating the material the way I think it should be treated and as very newsworthy and buzzy. I'm really excited to get this thing out and get it in front of people. Uh, you know, congratulations. The book is fantastic. And we're going to talk, I, I really want to start talking about what's in the book. Cause I know okay. as an author, the most, the most important thing is like, you know, the scoops in the book have been, been a, in a strategic way you guys have been putting out for weeks. Mm-hmm. You've built a lot of anticipation, and a lot of excitement, but there's been no word The bender bender. There's been a bender embargo. So this is your first chance to talk about the book. And I want to give you a chance to talk about it right off the bat. The book is great and you deserve congratulations for it. But that, I think maybe the thing that you deserve the greatest congratulations for is the fact that Donald Trump's trashing you on the eve of the publication, right? Yeah. Third rate reporter, Michael Bender. Now I was going to say that I rarely agree with Donald Trump about anything, but <laughs> in my experience, third-rate reporter Michael Bender is right on the nose. Kidding. Um, again, I think it's like the best compliment you could have. Um, the president, who for a period of time referred to me exclusively as that motherfucker, <laughs> to be third-rate reporter Michael Bender is the greatest compliment you can get, and will also juice book sales. So another piece of good news for you. Tell everybody what's in the book. What did you set out to do here? Yeah. And tell us what the book is. So what I set out to do here is completely different from what where it ended up. I mean, I agreed to do this back in the summer of 2019, where you and your listeners will remember there was, or maybe it's hard to remember, there was a period of that time where there was kind of a relative calm. Trump had survived Mueller, and he hadn't called the Ukrainian president yet. Right. And I was getting home every day at six to leave the nanny, right? Like, and I was like, oh, a book, like I'm going to spend all of 2020 writing about the campaign. Like that sounds very doable. And then 2020 ended up being something much different. So what this book ends up being, I think it's going to be unique, even in the flood of Trump books that are coming out this year. This is going to be the only book that goes behind the scenes for how Trump oversaw a series of crises in the country in 2020. That also goes behind the scenes of the campaign infrastructure and explains how they struggle to respond. And thirdly, and I think most importantly for me, is gives 2020 from the eyes of Trump's most dedicated supporters. Right. The folks who went to rally after rally and, and rally and tries to explain why even in a pandemic and the threat of coronavirus that they showed up time and time again. And I think at the end of the day, what this shows is just really how much more dangerous it was 
behind the scenes than we really thought or that we knew at the time and how close to the brink we got of uniformed military soldiers in the streets and you know some of the campaign tactics that Trump wanted to push on and and ends up giving, I think, the most complete portrait of who Donald Trump is as a president. Like I said before, this guy's been doling out a bunch of scoops and people have talked a lot about some elements of them, you know, Trump having a shouting match with Mark Milley mm-hmm. around the time in the post-George Floyd period. A lot of your reporting around that period, around Lafayette Square, some of that stuff is out. One of the things Trump is mad at you about is an account that you give in there of some tension, a fight with him and Mike Pence earlier over Corey Lewandowski, and that that gets in then to Trump's relationship with Pence at the end when he was pressing Pence to do something he was constitutionally unable to do, which was to overturn the election. You know, when you think about not just the things that are buzzy, Mm -hmm. but when you think about what the scoops in the book are that you think with the passage of time are things that have the greatest both historical import, like Mm -hmm. the scoops that matter and either that matter to how history will look on Trump or that are super illuminating about Trump. Mm -hmm. Things where it's like, this is a story that's not only new, but illuminates something about Trump that's really essential. I think the historical sweep of this, for me, one of the most important scenes is the back and forth with Mark Milley and Donald Trump, the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman in charge of the most powerful military in the world. And it's Trump and Milley and the whole circle, the whole universe of Trump world and and military and defense advisors in the Oval Office on June 1st. And he views the protests, the civil rights protests in very personal ways. Maggie Haberman and Peter Baker had broken the story about Trump hiding in a bunker a couple of nights earlier. He was um, embarrassed by that. And he wants military on the streets in order to, he thinks, sort of buttress his law and order image. And in this scene, you have Mark Milley trying to calm Trump down and not having any luck. And finally, Milley sitting in front of the Resolute desk points to the portrait of Lincoln behind Trump and says, that guy, Mr. President, had an insurrection. What we have is a protest. And I think that's a important scene. We have a couple of those in the book that show Trump's lack of interest in the history of any of these moments right. and not caring about the difference between an insurrection and a protest. And I think that leads into your second question here about what it illuminates. Um, what was fascinating to me at every level whether it's the West Wing or the administration or the campaign, is how many people told me, well, I was one of the people who leveled with Trump. Like, I told Trump the way it was supposed to be. I was the truth teller. And then when you scratch at that a little bit, it's not exactly the case. And everyone was sort of telling Trump their own truth in their own way, in a way that Trump could hear the lie. Very rarely was anyone point blank, no. Right. Or that's not correct. Right. It was always, well, maybe that could be. And that even brings us to the scene with Pence in the days before January 6th. Mike Pence knows the history. He has qualified good lawyers telling him that this is not something he can do or should do and tells Trump, well, we'll we'll look at what you give us. But I don't think this is right. But but we're happy to look at whatever, you know, and and the president hears the last part. Yeah. And sees that as his opening. And so the uh, the kind of management aspect of this book, managing down and managing up, is one of the strings um, that is threaded through you know, these scenes in the, in the West Wing and the campaign headquarters and the RNC, frankly. You know, there are some challenges here about how you report a book like this, especially when you're dealing with a group of people who are, mm-hmm. um, to one degree or another, you know, no, no one is as big a liar as Donald Trump, but 
a lot of the people around him were liars and enablers. And there's challenges that that brings to the reporting process, which, I, which, I, which I'll come to later. Oh, yeah. But I do think that that is important. I think that interplay that you're talking about is really important because so many people who justified their service in the administration by, well, I needed to be a guardrail. Mm-hmm. If we weren't here, you know, God knows what would have happened. And I was, you know, doing, I was, I may not have been, it may have been compromised in certain ways, but I was fighting the good fight for the country. And in their minds, I guess they think they were. But if you go back as the book shows over and over again, they push back a little bit. They try to wheedle. They try to cajole, but they don't really ever just stand up and say no yeah. to Trump or you're wrong. Right. And I don't know how different at the end of the day that is from other presidents, right? I mean, once you get close to that kind of power center, you want to keep it, right? Yes. And I mean, obviously, Donald Trump is a much different president than we've seen before. And, and the rules here are different or should be applied differently. But the way they describe themselves as, you know, the truth tellers, but really what they end up being are kind of at best sort of speed bumps, Right. right. And right. I think the book shows is the dangerous thinking that Trump had in the office. You needed more than a speed bump. You needed a cul-de-sac. Right. You know, everyone thought they just have to give Trump his own time and let him process the loss. And he'd find his own off ramp into this sort of outside of reality and eventually get himself to figure out how to, you know, concede. But Trump had been telling us for years this is what was going to happen. And yes, when Mike Pence and Ronna McDaniel and Bill Stepien give him the space to process it. All that does is create an opening for Rudy Giuliani, right? And his band of conspiracy theorists to come in and we know how that story ends. There's no doubt. Every president's surrounded by yes men and women. Mm -hmm. The difference is that most of the people in prior administrations, the vast, vast majority of them would not describe themselves as being a constraint or being a guardrail of democracy. Right. There's times when you have to tell a president no, or with times when a president's worst impulses should be curbed. But We've never had a president whose impulses were as bad as Donald Trump's, and we've never had a president where so many people around him were fully aware of the notion that the president was, these are not my words, although I agree with them, was intellectually, psychologically, emotionally, characterologically unfit for office. Right. This is their testimony. Again, not you know some liberal attack. They all looked at Trump and said, this guy's dangerous. And then they justified staying in the administration as I could help temper the danger yeah, I agree. And every president needs management. Right. Donald Trump is a special case, but previous presidents have, you need a lot of people around you to make that place work. And Trump didn't have that. The people he had around him, I think this book also shows is the people he had around him were around him. It turns out not as guardrails, but for their own gain, for one reason or another. You know, it's like that there's that saying, like you, you know, you lay down with dogs, you wake up with fleas, right? I think it's a little bit different in this case. It's like, you know, the kinds of people who are attracted to working for a grifter tend to be grifters themselves in a lot of cases. But here's a, a, one of your many scoops, right? And, mm-hmm. and I want to get back to some of that, you know, the sure. new material in the book. But here's one that's already out there, right? Trump goes to Europe in 2018 for the 100th anniversary of World War I mm-hmm. and says flattering things about Adolf Hitler. Um, <laughs> in the presence of his chief of staff, John Kelly. Mm-hmm. So tell this story, and then I'm going to ask you about Trump's reaction or lack of reaction to it so far in public. Yeah. So this is in the realm of, of his chief of staff, his team around him, briefing him on what the event is, who's going to be there, and why it's important. You know, some of the basic things that any president, governor, county commissioner, any of that stuff would expect from their staff. And the conversation quickly devolves when Kelly and others realize that Trump doesn't really have a good grasp on who the allies and enemies were. And John Kelly, who's very, very much a history buff, walks through some of it with him and tells him how this 
opens the door for World War II and Adolf Hitler. And Trump's response is that, well, Hitler did do some good things. And what Trump is talking about here is Germany's economy, right? Which shouldn't be surprising in that that's what Trump kind of latched onto. Like Germany had some good years under Hitler and their economy, but that's not really the point, right? And 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 <laughs> and that's what John Kelly try to refrain from laughing. But yeah, it's not. I mean, it's both horrifying and hilarious. But yeah, go ahead. Right, and John, and John Kelly tells him, well, you know, those people would be much better off poor. Right. I mean, even if you give them the economy point, like these people would be much better off poor than what they end up going through under Hitler. So let's not say that. Do not say this ever <laughs> publicly. Right. Um, and I, you know, I, I do think I include this in the section of the book of the George Floyd stuff. Right. And the point that I try to use this to illustrate is that it's not that Trump doesn't know black history. Like Trump doesn't really know white history yes. or like any kind of history. He just doesn't care about it. And this is the example that resonated most with me when it came to that point. So forget about history. Yes, Trump is an ignoramus when it comes to I'm not saying he's an idiot, which is a different mm -hmm. thing. We could mm -hmm. discuss that. But he's an ignoramus about about almost everything. Doesn't know very much, is intellectually uncurious, doesn't know history, doesn't know about a lot of things. Right. Mm -hmm. Vast acreage of things that Trump doesn't know about, isn't curious about. This is actually one of the many things that makes him problematic as president. It's just hard to imagine they're like just trying to think about whether in your life, not just public officials, but anybody like forming the words Hitler did a lot of good things is something that like most people, yeah. these words would just never come out of your mouth under any circumstance because you would be like, even if you might have tried to think, well, what were the things that made Hitler attractive to some number of the German people? What if you were making a list of assets and liabilities? What would be on the cop? Like, these are things that are reasonable things to think about. But the words Hitler did some good things. It's just not something like a normal person would ever say. Right. Right. And so that is an unpalatable thing. Trump knows that, mm -hmm. he, that he's responsible for the Holocaust. He knows that much. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the greatest anti-Semite in history killed six million or more Jews like for anybody who knows just that much, those words, Adolf Hitler did some very good things, they would just never come out of someone's mouth. So it's a question about what that says about Trump's psyche, that such words could come out of his mouth. That leads again to my question, which is, so Trump is like pushing back on parts of your book. Mm -hmm. He's saying, Mike Bender, third rate reporter. Mm -hmm. He's saying the story about me and Mike Pence and Corey Lewandowski isn't true. Mm -hmm. So it's not like Trump's being silent about you and your book, mm -hmm. Mike. And yet, mm -hmm. strangely, Trump has not said a word about your claim that he praised Adolf Hitler. Mm -hmm. What is that about? What does that let's say that Trump apparently thinks that like, as of now, at least he does not feel the record needs to be corrected on the question of Adolf Hitler. Um, there was pushback and some very threatening language used by his team to me when I was fact checking this and trying to stop me from using it. But my sourcing on this particular conversation is rock solid. And I knew that it was correct, which is why I included it in the book. And so it was surprising to me that when it came out, the president didn't himself, he used a spokesman to basically attack John Kelly instead of really refuting this. And I do think that part of it is a couple of things. Like at the very least, Trump has a very imprecise way of speaking. And it's almost politically a gift in that anyone can kind of come away from Trump's speeches hearing different things, taking different things away from it. This one is hard to parse, right? I mean, this one is nearly impossible for his own supporters to defend. And so that may be partly why 
he hasn't put it out there more vigorously and is just hoping it'll go away and not wanting to draw more attention to it yeah or even like forces people like he i don't know that he he must know that no one will defend him on this one right and um i think that's what's most dangerous about president trump here is that he's so imprecise with the way he speaks that in an instance like this and others it can really have unintended consequences and again that bring us to explain what happened on january 6th and and I do think part of his attack on the Pence bit was just the attention that this book has gotten. Yeah. I think has finally gotten to him. Yeah. And I think that was a big part of it and that he was reacting less to the anecdote and more to that story being picked up by other outlets. And you know what? Donald Trump knows how many people I talk to for this book. <laughs> he knows people very close to him that talked to me for this book and didn't talk to other reporters. Right. He knows the sourcing I have on this because they've all told him. And I think that he's nervous about that. Right. And you said, I mean, I just, just for the records, that when you talk about the Hitler thing, when you said rock solid sourcing, that's this, a, I believe I read some more that's like not just rock solid, but a multiple source thing that were like more than one person who were present for the utterance of those words. Yeah. I had that source with people who were present and who had been briefed on it. Right. Yeah. I can tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he does rate, I mean, it gets again with another topic, which is that one of the things that happened here is Trump is now said not just attack Mike Bender, third rate reporter, third rate Michael Bender, which puts you in the category of the failing New York Times. You know, he also says, you know, I saw this piece last Friday where he says, it seems to me that meeting with authors of the ridiculous number of books being written about my very successful administration or me is a total waste of time. Trump said in a statement in which he accused the authors of producing pure fiction. These writers are often bad people who write whatever comes to their mind or fits their agenda it has nothing to do with facts or reality. Now, Trump trashing the press is not new. Yeah, I, just, I feel like an idiot even right. saying that, right? The guy who invented the notion of fake news and you know, the enemy <laughs> of the people and all that stuff. And and mm -hmm. third-rate reporter Mike Bender, again, falls into the like a familiar genre. Uh, and again, which you sit next to the failing New York Times, which is, you know, when Trump says something like that, you're like, oh, <laughs> I, must, I must be doing well because, you know, it's opposites day. But mm -hmm. it's also the case that it's interesting to me that to your point about the amount of coverage you've been getting and then some of the other books I've been getting already, it's like he's already having second thoughts about having spent time with these reporters, right? And it was always mm -hmm. a question to me about whether you kind of like, to me, it sort of saw this coming a mile away when Trump decided I'm yeah. going to do a bunch of interviews with book authors. He's going to end up like regretting this and we're going to get to this point, but we're already <laughs> here where he's like, you yeah. know, why the fuck did I spend all the time with all these reporters? And it's like, well... <laughs> okay, really? well, the answer to that is two things. One is it wasn't to make sure Donald Trump's reason for sitting down with, I think, whatever it was, 20 or 25 of us or whatever his count is, maybe up to 50 now. Right, like, individually, Trump not, not, not collectively, by the way, just for anybody who's confused about this. Not like Trump did a group interview with book authors. He had individual interviews with individual yeah. authors, some of them more than once, including Mike Bender. Yeah, I sat down with him twice. It was, it was very generous of him to spend as much time as he did. Uh, after our first interview, he invited me to stay for dinner at Mar-a-Lago out on the terrace. You know, he was very generous with his time, as he was with the press for four years in the White House. And that is... To his credit. Correct. But what became clear to me was that the reason he was sitting down with us was not to set the historical record. I brought him anecdote after anecdote after anecdote of things that... Important scenes from 2020 and earlier that I thought illustrated bigger points. And he would not play ball. I mean, he would talk about what these meetings were like. He didn't want to talk about what his reactions were. He didn't want to talk about what his recollection was. Almost every question I asked, he would turn it back to election fraud. Right. About missing ballots in Detroit. Right. Right. About all of the problems in Georgia, that he had won Arizona. And I wasn't really there to litigate that. Right. So that was one, is that he wanted to 
get his message that he had won the election right. into these books. Right. I mean, it's the title of my book, so right. he should, you know. Uh, <laughs> you should. I, Basically, the job was already done with you. I mean, in terms of like Trump's point of view being represented, it's right there on the cover. I'll yeah, say again, yeah, that I, is frankly, it's an entire quote of his for the book, you know, the title of the book. I don't know why he's so, what, what he's so upset about. But the other point, and this is really fascinating and very, and just like a classic Trump moment is the other big reason he sits down with all of us. Well, you know, the one person he doesn't sit down with throughout all of this. Yeah, Woodward. Bob Woodward, because he's still he's he's mad about what happened. Yeah. Yeah. So this is all a a big part of this is just vengeance on one author. Right. um, Which is also kind of fascinating. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's totally fascinating. And I Mm -hmm. um, interviews with Trump are incredibly frustrating as a general matter. Like, I, you know, they're always it's very hard. Yeah. His tendency to filibuster and to take questions and not answer them. And you can't it's like you can be as determined and dogged as you want and go back to it 25 times and try to keep him on tr- to get the direct answer to the question you're asking. And if someone really doesn't want to answer your question and they're willing to just kind of constantly divert the conversation, there's mm-hmm. only so much you can do. It's like there's the things he wants to say. He's going to say those things. And it doesn't matter how many angles you come at him from. He can still bounce away from your question and they can be insanely frustrating. Not only that, you can't pin Trump down very easily. And if you try, he'll end the interview. Like right. you, you'll scare him away. I mean, I will say, like, I had some good luck interviewing him with the Wall Street Journal for, for in the daily news cycle when he was in office, yep. you know, in the Oval Office, uh, on Air Force One, during the campaign in Trump Tower. And by just having a conversation with him. And for me, as a daily news reporter, like I was always kind of thinking, like, what am I going to come out of this interview with right. as a headline today, right now, when I walk out of here, right? Yep. And he's very comfortable talking about news of the day, you know, what's in the newspapers, what's on cable news that day. Right. That's his main concern of, of winning the moment. And everything else is kind of a problem for his future self or his press team's future selves. But the book thing was really hard for me because I needed things to hold, right? And if it was going to make news... I just knew that he would say that in an email or at his next speech and right. it would, I would lose it. So, um, <laughs> so I do think like what was nice about, and I think it was, is in the book, he does respond to a handful of things that I should say that. And his voice from that interview is threaded through the book, but the epilogue is the scene of Trump in transition from leader of the free world to president of Palm beach. And he'd replaced his rallies with this nightly affirmation of standing ovations from his dinner crowd and his club members. I mean, both of my interviews were in the main sitting room of Mar-a-Lago right before dinner hour. So all of his club members were coming in and (laughs) the worst um, possible circumstance to do an interview with, with anybody. Oh yeah. But it was so fun because like Trump would, you know, lean over and be like, well, you know, off the record, this guy is, uh, is worth this much money. Wall Street Journal. Right. It's like worth this much money or like his wife left him or like very gossipy, but then loudly say, Hey, I'm sitting here with the Wall Street Journal. Right. Like that somehow validates the 45th president of the United States. Yeah. You know, he was in a good mood for my interviews. So that was fun. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it sounds like it. Um, I think this is a, a good place for us to take a break, Mike. And when we come back, we will dive a little deeper into all the ways that Trump ruined his chances for re-election. As you describe in your book, frankly, we did win this election, the inside story of how Trump lost. So we will take this quick break. We will listen to some messages and we'll come right back to this episode of Hell and High Water. And we're back on Hell and High Water with Mike Bender. 
So let me let me come back to the campaign in the book. Yeah. We talked a little bit about the George Floyd stuff. Like, you think about, I mean, so much happened in this campaign, Mike. It's like you think about it, one of the challenges as a reporter um, covering these things. Like, you, this is your nightmare, right? Which is that mm. Trump was constantly making news. Mm-hmm. Many days, there were three or four things that Trump would do on a given day that in any previous presidency would have occupied the news cycle for a week or sometimes a month. And he literally was doing it two or three times a day, right? Mm-hmm. You're mm-hmm. constantly chasing the things I think that history will remember on the Trump side, because they are the things that history will remember about 2020, one of them, obviously, anything related to the racial justice reckoning, and the other, obviously, mm-hmm. being COVID, right? So mm-hmm. in some ways, like everything else, so much in Trump's world, things happen that are often shocking, but not surprising. Um, mm-hmm. One of my favorite phrases around Trump, shocking, mm-hmm. but not surprising, because so much of Trump is exactly that. And Trump getting COVID certainly qualifies as shocking, but not surprising. On some level, completely inevitable. On another level, the greatest October surprise in history. Let's listen to Donald Trump talking about it in the aftermath, because this goes directly to one of the scenes in the book. I want to hear Trump's voice here and then talk about how you write about this in the book and what you learned about it. I said it right at the beginning. The cure cannot be worse than the problem itself. Can The cure cannot be worse. But if you don't feel good about it, if you want to stay, stay. Relax, stay. But if you want to get out there, get out. One thing with me, the nice part, I went through it. Now they say I'm immune. I can feel, I feel so powerful. I'll walk into that audience. I'll walk in there. I'll kiss everyone in that audience. So let's talk about that. Mm -hmm. You write about COVID, a, a giant policy challenge, public health emergency, once in a generation, once a century crisis that shaped the presidency, shaped the last year of the presidency, shaped the campaign, and a huge political challenge, or potentially, some would say, would have been a huge political opportunity if Trump had done it well, if Trump had managed the pandemic well. I think everyone agrees. Be, people would have been reelected mm-hmm. with ease, given mm-hmm. what we saw his performance was having fucked it up completely. So yeah. just talk about the COVID of it all. COVID is, a, is obviously a string throughout this book here. And I think what's new about this book when it comes to the policy response and the administration's response is that there were people in the administration who said, this is a big deal. We need to get masks on immediately. We have to have responses to this immediately. I mean, in January of 2020, while Trump was still having a Beijing delegation into the White House to celebrate the tr- his trade deal, right? But the thing that was striking to me and going back and re-reporting all of this was that at that point, all the things that Trump had survived Right. I mean, going back to 2016, he'd ridiculed John McCain, not just John McCain, John McCain's military service and nothing mattered. Right. And example, example after example of that, Robert Mueller doesn't really dent him. Impeachment in, you know, December, January of 2019, 2020, he comes out of stronger. Access Hollywood, which you for which you. Yeah. Just incredible things. Right. I mean, yes, yes, yes. So, like, I mean, in one sense, you, you can sort of understand how they would think like, well, this is just the next news cycle to survive. And it's that attitude that is the reason why alerts from Peter Navarro and all his executive orders or Matt Pottinger, a former soldier of military intelligence who had spent time in Asia and uh, had firsthand experience with SARS over there. He's, you know, waving flags and raising alarms and they're treated as alarmists. And then it just becomes too late, right? If they can't catch up, all of that is missed time. Like the, there is a world in which he could have easily won this race. Even with COVID, I was a newspaper reporter for a long time in Florida and watched people like, you know, Trump is not going to like this comparison. Jeb Bush, you know, the hurricanes, Florida gets hit by hurricane after hurricane after hurricane when he is governor in 2003, 2004, 2005. And um, 
no one blames Jeb right. for the hurricanes. It's right. the response, right? And Trump just never, you know, this is the this is the president who shot baskets with paper towels in Puerto Rico after a hurricane. Well, there are two elements here, right? I mean, one element of it is we know now from Woodward's last book that Trump in real time, that Trump was not in the dark. Uh, Trump understood how dangerous COVID was, and he decided to publicly downplay it. So that's one thing, right? And then later, as we heard in that clip that we played, when Trump gets COVID in October, there were those around the president, uh, as you, Mike, as you report in the book, who think like this could be a turning point, right? Mm -hmm. So- you know, everything's looking bad for Trump. At that point, the polls are bad. The first debate had gone terribly for him. Mm -hmm. It's really late in the fourth quarter here, you know, in the Trump campaign. And some people around Trump, maybe delusionally, still thought that he could turn it around. Mm -hmm. Although I say delusionally, but given Trump's actual performance on election day, you know, maybe they weren't so delusional after all. Everyone was shocked, right? I mean, oh, his like own team. everyone, like yeah. I was shocked. You were shocked. Election analysts mm-hmm. were shocked. Yeah. Pollsters were shocked. Republicans were shocked. Democrats were shocked. Everyone was shocked uh, when Trump ends up getting 10 million more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016. Yeah, I had this in the book. I mean, that he outperformed his own team's expectations by 15 percent. As he did in 2016. Yeah. The same thing, right? So the point that I was making was that mm-hmm. people around him thought, well, maybe this could be a moment, a humanizing moment, mm-hmm. a moment where Trump's gotten COVID. The, the, this could be an inflection point, an October surprise that works to our advantage. And then he does what he does, both in terms of how he handled Going the whole stay at Walter Reed and then coming back doing his Juan Perón thing from the from the South Balcony. <laughs> what I want to ask you about is like those decisions of how Trump decided to downplay the virus at first and then how he decided to portray his own uh, having been infected with it. That mm-hmm. those are political choices that mm-hmm. the president made. And I'm curious yeah. about what the book reveals about how the White House processed those choices or how Trump processed those choices with the calculations he was making and what they reflect about his psyche, what they reflect about his view of, of the election, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, it, it goes back to how he first approached COVID and that he'd survived all of these crises and had reason to believe that he could impose his reality on a pandemic as well. And that's what he tries to do. I mean, even when he gets the virus, even when he gets the virus, John, in, in the book, I have uh, some back and forth. There are people who told me that Trump tested positive the same morning Hope did. The morning he went to Bedminster and had a fundraiser. Right. But thought it was a, a false positive. Right. Um, it's not a false positive. It turns out he and he gets very, very sick. And this is where they what you're talking about is um, folks like uh, Bill Stepien and Jason Miller, Hope Hicks. See, for a moment there, Trump is is humbled by this thing. He is very, very sick. Right. I mean, we know that we knew some very good reporting, even at the time, about right. how you know, behind the scenes, how sick he was. And a light seems to have gone on with Trump right. about about how serious this is. He thought he was going to die at one point, right? I mean, like yeah. I think that's it's been reported that he was he was very sick, much sicker than they were letting on publicly at the time, and that he was he's very phobic about about his health and very phobic about death. And he was again at one point under the he was like, oh, "This is it. Could this could be the end for me?" That's how serious it was in his yeah. mind. Yeah, I mean, and I do think there is more reporting to be done about what exactly was happening behind the scenes and yep. how sick he actually was and how he was being treated even in the White House by his doctors. But yeah, I mean, you talk about his phobia. I always was amazed that Trump didn't use it as an opportunity to... Trump has been using hand sanitizer for years. You know, after rallies, he uses dozens of wipes 
to, you know, to wipe himself. Like if there's anyone who knows how to use hand sanitizer, how to put on a mask the right way, right? It's Trump. <laughs> like, you know, like why don't yeah. you lean into your strength there, guy? Right. And But he, he wanted to downplay it. But yeah, he's sick. Like the team thinks there's a moment where he can be um, empathetic, right? He was so excited. This is what, in the book too. He was so excited about the treatment he got, right? That he calls, ends up calling the cure. Right. Yep. But they even see that his team sees that as an opportunity to talk about, you know, the advances in medicine and, you know, as a way to talk about COVID in, in an optimistic way of like, we're, we're, you know, we have good treatments, like things, help is on the way type of stuff. Right. And it doesn't even last the Marine One ride back to the White House, right? Like he starts jokingly, at least partly, arrive on the South Lawn and rip open his shirt this show Superman sign, right? I mean, that's like, it's just, the moment is is there and gone. Any hope they had for for, for redefining or, or pivoting on this message was, was short-lived. Yeah, definitely short-lived. And um, this is, I guess, a good place, speaking of short-lived, this is a good place for us to take another quick break, a short-lived break. Uh, and when we come back, we'll talk about the Trump campaign's last hope to win the election and your involvement in that drama, as you describe it in your new book, Frankly, We Did Win This Election. The Inside Story of How Trump Lost by Michael C. Bender. So let's take that quick break. Let's listen to some messages and we'll come right back uh, to this episode of Hell and High Water. We are back with Helen Highwater with uh, my friend Mike Bender, author of the new book, Frankly, We Did Win This Election, The Inside Story of How Trump Lost. Uh, I want to take a deep dive into the very end of the campaign with you, Mike, uh, when you got dragged into a plan hatched by Donald Trump, Steve Bannon, Rudy Giuliani, the three horsemen of the apocalypse, who had all decided that they had discovered a silver bullet that would kill Joe Biden. Uh, and the silver bullet turned out to be his son, Hunter, and his now infamous laptop. And in those final days, uh, that's all we heard about from Trump. We heard a lot from Trump. I mean, constantly, all we heard from Trump was about Hunter Biden, Hunter, Hunter, Hunter. Uh, anyway, this is what it actually sounded like hearing about Hunter from Donald Trump. Joe's son, Hunter, got thrown out of the Navy, and then he became a genius on Wall Street in about two days. <laughs> By the way, whatever happened to Hunter? Where the hell is he? Where's Hunter. Hey, fellas, I have an idea for a new T-shirt. I love the cops, but let's do another T-shirt. Where's Hunter? Where is he? You think about that period at the end of the campaign. You know, October, the debate has happened. Trump has gotten COVID. There are October surprises are, uh, of varying dimensions are happening almost every day. And in the middle of all of it is what becomes the last hope on the Trump side of the thing that they think somehow will take down Joe Biden, which is the Hunter Biden thing. You know, within a week of when Biden gets into the race, you use when Ken Vogel wrote that story in the New York Times about Hunter Biden and Burisma, which set in motion the events that led to Trump calling the president of Ukraine mm -hmm. that got him impeached the first time. Rudy's already been for a year, has already been obsessed with Ukraine. But that's Biden has been in the race literally six days when the first big Hunter story hits and it never goes away. And mm -hmm. at the end, we have an attempt to, to inject Hunter into the bloodstream and make Hunter Biden be the thing that will take Joe Biden down. And you have an incredibly interesting version of this story, of course, because yeah. they decided that they wanted the Wall Street Journal and Mike Bender's mm -hmm. imprimatur on the material that was derived from Hunter's laptop. And I want you to tell that story. And I think what's so fascinating about it, I will say, before I let you, let you rip mm -hmm. here, is that I spent the night of the first debate at Hofstra with Steve Bannon. 
watching the first debate from their hold room from the first debate in 2016. This was oh, a conceit. Okay. This yeah. was a conceit from the circus. We would go back with Bannon, yeah. watch the debate that was happening in Ohio with Bannon from the hold room where they had done the first debate in 2016. And he would then reflect on what was going on. We'd, we'd do commentary on the debate and okay. also reflect on what had happened in 2016. That would be kind of <laughs> great television, right? Mm-hmm. The next morning, Bannon called me on the phone and told me about Hunter's laptop um, mm. and that he was working with Rudy to get it into the hands of of some friendly outlet turned out to be the New York Post. So that is happening. The, the New York Post became the conveyor belt for their version mm-hmm. of Hunter and Hunter's laptop. You were on a whole different thread here, right? Uh, which was the the more, you know, the attempt of the campaign to get some kind of, of more credible imprimatur put on this material. Mm-hmm. Talk about that from your perspective, because it's a really interesting part of the book. Yeah, I mean, the stuff with Hunter Biden is worthy of attention. Right. And there are the way he operated and in more of a question of of kind of political largesse and how people try to capitalize on that. And, it, you know, it, I've always thought that was worthy of attention and worthy of questions. Right. But the, the problem is that Trump and his team saw this, as you say, as a silver bullet, which it is not at least nothing we've seen has anything to do with Joe Biden specifically. And the problem for them was that the only people paying attention to this really were were right-wing media. The the right-wing media was willing to sort of make the points that Trump wanted to make without having the facts to back it up. And that had gotten ignored by us at the Journal and the Times and the Post because like there just wasn't those details. So what they tried to do with me was they said that they had documents, right? They had documents that showed Joe Biden was involved. I mean, this is the this is the holy grail now in, in Trump world and that Biden was involved in, in the hunter pursuits around the world. So I went to meet him. I yeah. like any, right? And like, these are yeah. they're people I've known for a long time. You know, there was no promises, obviously. And right. and this is where they introduced me to a man by the name of Tony Bobolinsky. And I think like Bobolinsky is a real person. Yeah. You know, I, it looks like the documents they have are real, that the text messages they have are actual you know, documents and that this stuff hasn't been, hasn't been just made up. Right. But even though they walk me through all of this stuff, I tell them, like, I think it's a fat, it really is. It's a, a rare look under the hood of international business dealings at really the embryonic stage between two ec- economic superpowers in the U.S. and China and businessmen in both countries who are young, ambitious and well-connected. Hunter Biden on the U.S. side. And for a place like the Wall Street Journal, I mean, this is in a it's a fascinating story. Right. It's not the one they want. It's not right. what they think it is. There is nothing that hits Joe Biden that, that will take down his presidency, certainly in the final days of the campaign. And I'm honest and forthcoming with them about that. I said, I'm willing to bring this back to the journal because it is a fascinating story. It's not a front page Joe Biden did it story. So like if right. you're trying to get that, you got to bring it somewhere else. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting to me that to get back to what I was saying earlier, they want me to go forward because what they want is a mainstream news organization to say that there is something here worth looking at, yep. right? At least that much. And right. it's not just a wild, totally wild conspiracy theory, but unbeknownst to me, and I think unbeknownst to them, Trump has a parallel operation going with Bannon and Giuliani and this laptop and their story comes out first. Right. I mean, I, obviously, clearly. Right. I mean, the journalist has the journal is known for its rigorous editing process. Yeah, like we're yeah. not going to like and the New York Post just puts the damn thing on online. Yeah, right. Yeah. And that was the first time a lot of the people 
at the campaign knew what Bannon and Giuliani were up to. Yep. So that night, the post story comes out, and I see it obviously, and I was like, "Well, this is some like our stuff is going to be in this laptop. If they have the laptop, our stuff's going to be in there." But I still feel like it's probably worthwhile for a story for us, and I don't really actually make a, that big of a deal of it at the time. Like I don't th- think it like really affects our purposes. But that night, Bannon calls me in just in a fury, right, and was like, "What's this? I hear about you, you know, working on this Bobolinsky story. I hear you have a team of." a dozen journal reporters and you're coming out with a front page story in like two days. And it was clear to me what was happening was that, was that the people I was working with were now telling Bannon to, to shut the hell up, cut it, knock it off. Like we're, I mean, I obviously had not made any of those promises, but that was the point where I realized that none of them had been talking to each other and that this is going to come to a head in a very bad way, very quickly. And it does when Trump blurts out in public that the journal is working on a story about Hunter Biden and you know, and just like, oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think he mentioned your name, but I no, think no, he no. Just journal. the journal. Yeah. I think this continues to be a, a subject of interest. And I'm curious what you think about it. There is no doubt that accusations of, especially when Joe Biden was vice president of the United States, pursuing certain aspects of American foreign policy, spearheading some of them, including in Ukraine. But there also are allegations related to China, Mexico, mm-hmm. other places. Mm-hmm. That the the notion that, that Joe Biden's son was trading on his family's name for self-enrichment is a serious allegation and should be examined, has been examined by a lot of people, number one. Number two, there is the question then of going on now, right today, and in the time when Joe Biden was in office as opposed to a private citizen, the questions of whether Joe Biden was compromised in some way, whether affected policy or whether he was also enriched by that is also a worthy thing to be examined. Those are legitimate questions. Mm You know, what happened in the fall mm-hmm. in this period we're talking about is that a number of things happened. One of the things that happened was the possibility that the laptop, an argument that was made by many people, serious people, that the laptop might have been to one either in whole or in part fake and potentially an outgrowth of a Russian disinformation campaign was something that a lot of people in the press took very seriously, given what happened in 2016. So there was a lot of mm-hmm. hesitance about, exactly. about doing what the New York Post did, which was just dumping the laptop content in its pages mm-hmm. and online. The Post focused a lot on, on Hunter sex and drugs and not as much actually on, the, on some of the mm-hmm. business things, although they focused on both. So you had the press generally being gun shy about this. Now, the, now conservatives say the press wasn't gun shy. The press was just trying to protect Joe Biden, right? But it is the case that there was a blackout mm-hmm. on a lot of this information for a period of time, an explicit one on social media. Yeah. You know, Twitter and Facebook basically said, we're not going to put mm-hmm. any of this Hunter Biden stuff. Anybody who puts this up, we're going to take it down. They took the New York Post down when the New York Post tried to post this stuff. So this is a matter yeah. of some controversy. And as you know, there are a lot of conservatives still angry about this and who, who contend that it's continuing to this day that Hunter is like a no-go area yeah. and the liberal press is protecting Biden on this question. And I raise all that partly because it's an ongoing area of interest and partly because you and I both agree that mm-hmm. there is a very good question. Was Hunter Biden trading off his family's name in some way that was either unethical, illegal, unseemly? And was Joe Biden implicated in it? Mm-hmm. That's the relevant question for the campaign, right? And this is the question I believe right. that this is where we get to Mike Bender because what they wanted, I, I, and I, I'm reading your account of it, it's still a little unclear exactly what their fondest hopes were from you. Clearly they wanted the journal and your imprimatur that there was something here. There's that's quite right. that. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. But the only way you could reasonably believe this was a silver bullet was that if you wrote a piece that basically said, yes, 
Hunter Biden, not just was Hunter Biden trading off his family's name for self-enrichment, but Joe Biden is directly implicated, either financially or in terms of policy implications, right? And the big takeaway, when your story came out, I believe it came out the day of the second debate, if I remember correctly, when your story comes out mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. the Wall Street Journal has looked into it and basically is saying, that's the headline, yeah. was Joe Biden was not involved. Hunter Biden maybe did a bunch of bad things, but Joe Biden was not involved. Therefore, yeah. correct, There's right? No that's that, that's involved, as I yeah. recall it, that's what the import of this ends up being. So not only do you not give them what they were looking for, but the Biden people would wave the Wall Street Journal and Mike Bender's reporting around and saying, look, here it is, nothing here. Yeah. Tony Bobolinsky, who fucking cares? It's just really interesting <laughs> to me that like that that's where we ended up, right? The Trump people, not only did they not get what they wanted, but they got the exact opposite of what they wanted. Your reporting became the nail in the coffin on the Hunter Biden story. That's right. Uh, in, in October of 2020. Yeah. And they put the nail there for us to hit with the hammer, right? I, I mean, I told them in the room that night that everything they had, it was going to be easily refuted by the Biden campaign, showed nothing. Uh, uh, concrete, right? And the, the places where they wanted me to take a leap were on text messages that Hunter had said, or like kind of coded, loaded language that Hunter was using. And it was like, well, okay, is Hunter this like drug addled uh, idiot who can't be trusted on anything? Or is he a secret mastermind who's, who's funneling money to his father, right? Like you can't really have it both ways. And that's going to be a, a, a difficult narrative for anyone to pull off. What they wanted, they want, they were trying to right. stop the bleeding. They were trying to show that there is something here, even if it wasn't Joe Biden did it, right? Or even close to that, that Hunter's business dealings were worthy of examination. That's all really they wanted. Just And kind of, I think what they wanted to do then is to try to see what was going to happen after that. And just sort of like hope that one thing led to the next and maybe they find their silver bullet at one point. But the problem is the rigorous editing and reporting processes of the Wall Street Journal are anathema to Trump world. Right. 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 And yeah. it's just it, it was never going to work because he's like the president already already has Bannon and Giuliani right. on, on this parallel track. And they just force our hand to write a story about Biden's involvement instead of yeah. Hunter's involvement. It's like the, it's the great paradox and the great irony of the whole thing, right, is that the reason that they want you guys is because you are like a gold standard, and especially on a story like this that involves money and business. Mm -hmm. Why are you the gold standard? Because mm -hmm. you're incredibly rigorous and you have incredible like standards and you report the hell out of everything. and You have like editors who question everything. That's why you're the gold standard. And, and that fights yeah. what they also want, which is speed. <laughs> Which is like they want this. They want you guys right, to be the gold exactly. standard and be slipshod simultaneously, which is kind of like the two things are kind of fighting each other. In the, in yeah, there was no one around Trump that was going to be able to like this to use the Hunter Biden stuff as a political cudgel in the final days of the campaign after like after he had been impeached for this very basically this very thing trying to go after Hunter. Right. Yeah. Like there was no one around him that was going to be able to thread the needle on this to make it work. And Trump spends most of his final rallies yeah. talking about Hunter instead of Joe. And we haven't even talked about like the messaging problems Trump had in 2020 versus 2016. And this is a prime example of it. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, actually there is a lot that we haven't talked about, including Mike. I promised you when you came on this podcast, I said, we're going to talk about Mike Bender's background. We're going to make Mike, Mike Bender's rise to prominence as uh, iconic and mythic as like, <laughs> you know, Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward. So uh, we haven't done that. We haven't painted the portrait of a young Buckeye on the rise through the swampland of Florida to the swamp of Washington, D.C., along with January 6th and the symbiotic relationship uh, of Donald Trump and the D.C. press corps, the difficulty of locating the truth. 
for a book like yours where every single source is a pathological liar <laughs> and the future of both the Republican Party and Donald Trump as its leader. That's a lot we haven't covered. Uh, we don't have enough time in this episode to cover all of that. Uh, but worry not, faithful listeners. Worry not, Mike Bender. We've got all of you covered. We have decided to put the rest of this conversation with Mike Bender in the second segment of the special two-part episode. So we're going to cover all that ground in that second part, which will drop tomorrow, uh, Wednesday morning, July 14th. So be sure to download that puppy when it appears on whatever app you happen to use to enjoy the splendors of the podcast universe, since you won't want to miss the rest of this epic, epic talk with my pal Mike Bender on his great new book, Frankly, We Did Win This Election, the inside story of how Trump lost, even though, like, you know, Trump, you didn't win, you lost. Anyway, come back tomorrow. We'll see you then.